0: For me, this book was a way to articulate feelings about music that I had never been able to put words to. It helped me make sense of sound and emotion and the way those things can intertwine. And I think that uh, if you read closely and listen even more closely, this book might do the same for you. This is Hanif abdur author of They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. I look forward to meeting you on Spotify alongside the music that inspired these stories. I'd be honored to be your next great listen.
1: Welcome to After Life After. This is a roundtable discussion, picking up where the sci-fi thriller Life After leaves off. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson from Star Talk Radio. As you know, I'm a scientist, I'm interested in science, both in the universe and in fiction, and in any way it gets delivered to our civilization. And so I'm very excited to host this after show. Life After handles very deep questions that prevail in society today. And they're not problems we have today, they're problems we might have tomorrow. Like, what happens to our digital lives when we're gone? Assuming we have created digital versions of ourselves in advance, or could you take an online personality and bring it back to life? So I'm here, I can't do this alone, so I've got three really good guests. Mac Rogers, Michael Littman, and Colin Paris. First, If you haven't yet binged on Life After, our conversation will probably contain some spoilers. I'm just letting you know. But don't worry, I'll tell you why. Because what you'll learn in this conversation will enhance your appreciation and understanding of the storytelling of Life After. First, have the playwright. You can't do this without the playwright, who's completely (laughs) responsible for this. He's the playwright and series author, Mac Rogers. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So Mac, how'd you become a writer?
2: Uh, Well, I was acting in children's theater plays when I was a little kid, but then at a certain point I just started thinking, oh, I'd like to write. So I shifted into writing plays, and for many, many years I've been almost exclusively a playwright, Uh, but then I wrote some science fiction plays that got the interest of Panoply, which led into into writing these audios. So um, uh, my background is is largely in writing science fiction for the theater.
1: And you're here in New York City where we love our playwrights. (laughs) That's that's correct. That's right. Yes, I live here. Yeah, so Michael Littman, you're a professor at Brown University. How about you?
3: Uh, I am not a playwright, <laughs> but my daughter is so that's oh, no that's really okay. exciting, yeah, uh-huh. so how did I get into into computer science? yeah so- yeah. So when I was little, uh, the TRS-80 came out and I thought that's cool, I want to do that. And TRS-80, so- that's
1: Radio Shack. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, hardcore. My show my street cred here. Can I hang with you guys or uh, uh, not? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And
3: um, and yeah, it really spoke to me. And so um, so I've been studying computer science uh, ever since and the AI part of it is I don't know, it's just like, brains are cool, man. I mean, it's <laughs> it's so interesting to think about how that's the you get be, that's stuff done. Is that the best done. line? Oh, yeah, go, no, no, that's,
2: that's I've already right. stolen it. I've already, <laughs> so I'm telling you right now, you get your lawyer Vargas, I've already stolen
1: uh, it. Brains are cool. Brains are, yeah. brain. Okay, so you made it an avocation. Yeah yeah okay cool
0: and colin how about you uh, i started out years ago in um in undergrad with the hardware side where you had to actually wire these boards right you have to run wires and capacitors forever that's like the 19th century oh my god right okay um, then someone showed up and actually showed me a software program and i could rewrite this thing in an hour my world changed after mm. that it went to software you know then did the phd spent 20 years at ibm now I'm at ge oh because okay. the world evolves were well, you think- at yorktown i mean this. Okay. Yeah, I was at Bell Labs before in New York, and then I've also run big Bell Labs IBM business. And York,
1: town. so you yeah. you're the man yeah, about the, the t- No, no, no. no. You see the journey. Are you from the same planet as Jeffrey Holder? Trinidad, Trinidad. Yes, okay. I grew up in Trinidad, Trinidad, Tobago. That, the, 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 that, you know. Exactly, hence the accent. Okay. So Mac Rogers what were you thinking? <laughs>
2: <laughs> when the various folks involved, Panoply and GE uh, uh, got together to talk to me about doing this, you know, they we kicked around a bunch of ideas and sort of the idea that I think really sparked... But
1: so is a production company. That is correct. And, and yeah, GE yeah. is the GE. That's yeah. right. The, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. The one and only, yeah. You know, we kicked around some you know, a bunch of technology-based ideas, but I think the one that really sparked everyone's imagination was the idea of social media presence, the huge personalities that we manifest online that when we die now, we're far enough into the era of social media that people die and leave a large public identity behind. What is that identity? And like, you know, could you construct an artificial identity from the leftover social presence? The story takes into account the idea like what if and what if an artificial intelligence could Recreate voices of people. It posits a world in which there is a, a fictional social media platform called VoiceTree where people leave voice messages behind instead of text ones. And it can recreate the voices of lost loved ones from those leftover voice messages.
1: So, it, does this make interesting storytelling because people fear it?
2: in doing a little bit of research I saw and you know uh, some of the other folks here will have a much more sophisticated take on this but I, I thought that's why getting you out of the way before I get to the yeah. real uh, expertise yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the 101 guy I'm, I'm the, I'm the compliment class before <laughs> going into uh, 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 there were three basic kinds of AI uh, two of which I guess are largely theoretical in nature there's narrow intelligence which is like even something what'd you call me? <laughs> 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 where, thing where it's like it would predict what Netflix movie you want to watch next uh, mm-hmm. they can figure out when to engage the anti-lock brakes on your car. Artificial narrow intelligence, artificial general intelligence is an intelligence that's equal to a human, and then artificial super intelligence is the theory, the idea that someday there could be an artificial intelligence that surpasses human intelligence in every way. Uh, I thought in this story, in Life After, that the most interesting route to go would be to have an AI, rather than a super genius AI, which I've seen in lots of other stories. I like the idea of having a, a very limited AI that had a mission, a mission that it considered a laudable mission, to sort of end all the grieving and the world. Right, right. Yeah. Like a bee to nectar.
1: Because that command runs counter to my mission. Which is what? What did Vlad tell you to do? To protect you from grief. To protect all human beings from grief. To convey them from this mortal realm to a heaven where grieving doesn't exist. How does Orpheus NYC fit into that?
3: Or any of those people your family killed?
1: You're right, bring Cutler. Those were failures. Protecting my family only led to more suffering. It's harder than it looks, isn't it?
2: But because it was so limited in its reasoning capability, it causes a lot of destructive things to happen because it can't take a step back and say, wait a minute, am I actually serving the greater good or am I actually just serving this one narrow mission? I like the idea that if it was a limited enough AI that it would sort of function in much the same way a human fanatic might. And that was something that really excited me about the story.
1: Interesting, because fanatics, you kind of can appreciate their, their zeal... But if they're kind of uncontained in their fanaticism, you're right, it'll almost always go bad.
2: That feeling that the same solution works for everything,
1: right. which, which never is true. Right, right. So Michael, Michael Littman. Hi. Yeah, you're a professor and a computer scientist in the Humanity-Centered Robotics Initiative. That sounds, I, I don't know if I want to visit that place. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, well, no, it's Humanity-Centered. Wait, wait. First, so are, it's you, happy, are you real? That's... I am indeed, okay. I am indeed. I've been developing been real for, your whole life. For, for
1: 50 years now, yes. <laughs> Uh, so, what is that initiative at Brown University? That's right. Yeah. So, so welcome to town. Thank you very yeah. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're recording this uh, in New York City. Yeah.
3: So, so uh, at Brown, we have a number of people who are interested in robotics and AI. My background is in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we thought it would be great for us to coalesce together and do some research together and to really Just focus to be clear,
1: it- just to be clear, machine learning, is that like teaching at chess or something? Is that what you mean by machine learning? So machine learning,
3: right, so that's, a, that's a great question. A lot of the technology that we see now when we're interacting with websites and so forth is driven by this notion of machine learning or artificial intelligence, where the idea is, for example, you want to train up the system to be able to recognize human voices, it's hard to program that it's hard to write down a set of rules that can figure all that out so instead what we do is we feed lots and lots of data lots of examples to oh. it and this is something that's actually captured very well in the podcast Um uh, mac really nailed this he had the system learning from uh these voice posts that people made about uh two, order of 2000 voice posts so about 33 hours of of audio
1: Is this any different from learning off of looking at faces so that you can identify the next face?
3: It is. uh, So so there's a lot of research where that's exactly the kind of input that is provided to these systems. The same kind of thing. Yeah. um, So I like to think of machine learning sometimes as computational statistics, essentially like analyzing data so that you can do powerful things with it and using computers to do that.
1: So what is a humanity-centered robot?
3: So the idea of the Humanity-Centered Robotics Initiative is to focus not on... So as a computer scientist, sometimes we get very kind of focused in on the technology and not really on the implications of it to broader society. And so... Isn't that always the case? So I want to claim that it's not always the case. There's a lot of my colleagues (laughs) who... Okay, you're uh, different. Okay. Not just me. There's a lot of my colleagues who actually really care very deeply about how these technologies and automation in particular impact people more generally. But I do think it's more of a... It's gaining momentum now. <laughs> it's <laughs> not been historically the case.
1: Okay. Okay. So, who else do we got here? We got Colin Paris. I pronounced that last name right. Yes, you did. Just Paris. That's
0: right. Like the city.
1: Like the city. We're Except you have, you got two R's. That's right. That's one right. R wasn't enough for you. <laughs> no, <Okay>. at all. <laughs> You're VP of General Electric Software Research. Yes, I am. Well, because, you know, I, I, we've all seen your commercials where, <laughs> you know, because we think of G as a big industrial, That's right. like uh, industrial revolution, That's right. huge machine pulleys and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so software is not the first thing. It comes to people's exactly.
0: minds. Exactly. So you've seen Sarah and you've seen Owen. Those are the two in the commercial. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but now what you have, because you have all those machines, you have a lot of data coming out of it. Mm-hmm. So just like we had that discussion before, now that I have that data, can I use machine learning to understand a bit more about what's happening with the machine? Can I use that to go to the extreme edge of its performance? Or no, when there's something happening with a life-limiting part, so I could repair it at the right time. Give me an example. Okay, for instance, in an... A jet engine i'd like to know the remaining life on one of the blades spinning in the turbine this way i can bring it in at exactly the right time and replace it not too soon not too late exactly if i bring it in too soon i take away the plane from the use of the customer yes. if i bring it in too late we have a problem what if you had an exact replica of that train that only existed in digital space where you, like, plugged in every detail of everything you've ever observed about all of those moving parts, how they interact, how they degrade, and you simulate all that on your virtual train. Only on fast-forward, so you can see years in seconds.
2: You're saying the digital train would break down like a real train?
0: And because it's digital, nobody gets hurt. And then you can warn the real train before the same thing happens to it. It's like having a time machine, only with really informed pattern extrapolation instead of time travel. So really not like a time machine. Who are
2: you? So this is the digital twin technology that we talked about. Exactly. In
0: the, okay. this, the digital twin is a digital representation of a physical asset focused on delivering
1: a business outcome. Wow. So you have to, that's got to be programmed to fully understand the usage yes. and the wear and tear right down to the molecular level.
0: Exactly. As we say, you do it based upon a business outcome, limited intelligence. So I'm looking specifically at one or two things.
2: I remember what a great moment it was when we were figuring out what the story was going to be of realizing, you know, that we could talk about the digital twin technology in it. But it also had this wonderful metaphor for the digital twin of ourselves that we create through social media. It all slotted very nicely into place for the storytelling. So so, so this is all
1: food for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah I love this yeah, stuff. Yes. I love this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Because, yeah. you know, obviously there's, like, all different kinds of science fiction. You have the outlandish, you know, Star Wars, completely off-world science fiction, Aliens with Tentacles or whatever. But if you're doing more, like, five minutes into the future type science fiction, you're always going to have some outlandish stuff in a fictional story. Fictional stories are always going to distort science to make some, like, you know, snazzy uh, peril happen. But uh, um, like it's snazzy, cool to base it on. A snazzy peril. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, I, you yes. know, I, that, that's the first time in the history of yeah. the world, those,
1: those two, words, two (laughs) made it into the same sentence. It's the best peril to be in. You can see I'm writing right now. If you've got to be in a peril, let it be. That's right. That's right. right But it's cool because it gives
2: the story a bit more immediacy if some of that is extrapolated from actual existing technological innovations that are happening right now, which is why it was great to be able to talk to your people about that
0: as I was writing the script. Now, the interesting thing about the twin is that it uses both physical capability and digital capability. So because I have limited amount of data, I have to resort to some of the physics that we've already done. So the physics helps him buff against the lack of data that I have. Wait, wait.
1: So you're getting the data from actual wear and tear on actual parts?
0: Yes, but I also know enough about the physics of those parts because I understand the molecular The material structure. science of the parts. Exactly. So I compensate for the lack of things I have. It's like looking at the Twitter and the um, Facebook feeds, but I also go back and I look at the history of the person. I look at where they were born, where they grew up, medical records. So now I can fill in the parts I don't understand. Now I have a complete profile. Mm-hmm. Now I get a lot better. Mm.
1: And that's an eternally sharpening point. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because the more data I
0: collect in real time and the more I have your background, the more I narrow in more and more to the point where I can optimize the asset, optimize the operations around it, optimize
1: the business around it. So I heard this is they're doing this for bridges as well to check for bridge yes, failure and definitely. structural failure. And, exactly. So I mean, this could be the future of everything. Yeah, But the
0: difference though is things like the planes. The planes are moving in environments that are changing. What most people don't realize is when I'm flying that jet up there, flows of air change. So now planes are flying through flows of air that cause ice to be formed in certain ways. You'd never have anticipated that because the actual flows in the world changed. Mm -hmm. So now that I have to deal with the things that change dynamically, I need a model that can change instantly. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm looking
1: for.
2: We have an element of, of metaphor to that in the script where it's like... The you and
1: metaphors.
0: <laughs>
2: what, what is this with writers and I metaphors? Say, I still like the snazzy perils. This is a real snazzy peril that we run into in our, in our uh, 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 writing the, process. The, the, but the idea that a lot of the voices of the dead that are simulated in the story yeah. are are flawed, are limited in a way because the AI that creates them no longer has the original person to model off right. of. It only has the left behind evidence. It can't incomplete introduce, bits. And, yes. it, it's incomplete bits and yes. it can't introduce new factors like those more pockets of air that you're talking about it can't introduce new information, so those voices, the people who take comfort in listening to the simulations in the story, do keep running up against the limitation that they don't the gaps th- th- at a certain point they can't be like a real person because we don't put everything of ourselves yes, on uh, onto yes, social yes, media. Yes, yes, yeah. The computer in the story can't model it off the original like the real life digital twin technology does.
3: I think there's a nice connection to make to science in general, though, because this notion of combining some kind of prior model that you've structurally built and is analytical and mathematical with data, the actual empirical information and integrating those two is exactly what science is doing all the time
0: what's the news rossi
3: and i know that's wrong
0: hey i'm talking talking to you
2: because i know her posts cold and this isn't one of them
0: i'll repeat for the back row what's the news rossi i am Okay, then I'll start. My news is, I miss, m- 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 miss you like crazy, and I can't uh, believe how great it is to hear your voice. <laughs> now it's your turn.
3: I... Meet your next audiobook listen, Ghost Season, by Fatina Bass. This dynamic story about the deep and sometimes unspoken truths that run through borders, relationships, and conflict is set on the Sudanese border where there's a body, There are complex relationships, there are consequences for getting it wrong, and there is much on the ever-changing and unmapped line. Narrated by Dion Graham and Bonnie Turpin, once you press play, you'll be invested until the last word. Listen now on Spotify.
1: Let me get back to you, Mac. When was the last time anyone heard a radio play? Until they bumped into yours, is that is that? A, uh, what, tell me about that medium.
2: I mean, you know, obviously it was it was a big thriving form for a while. How many episodes you've had so far? The two that I've written for GE were, were limited mini series. The message last year was an eight part series. Uh, this one, Life After, is a ten part series. And you know, radio drama kind of got knocked out in the U.S. by TV. But I think what's happening now with with the advent of podcasts, with the popularity of podcasts, is people are very busy. People are working harder than ever before, and they want entertainment that they can take in that they don't have to look at. Entertainment that. They can take in when they're commuting, when they're washing dishes, when they're vacuuming, when they're doing all kinds of stuff. Audio is entertainment you can fit into the interstices of your life that wouldn't work with television or film or, or a theater. And I have so, a different hypothesis.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, That uh, Americans are in this era overweight and we all have to go to fitness centers. And that's a great place to just put on the headphones. That is yeah, true on the cardio machine. <laughs> and that I, was definitely I did something. Yeah. listen to
3: much of this podcast on the treadmill. There so, there is that right? <laughs> yeah. You know what?
2: And that's actually a good piece uh, of motivation right there because whenever I'm writing an audio drama, this needs to be taking someone's mind off the pain of exercising. I mean, uh, that's a pretty high
1: bar for storytelling. You have failed as a writer. Yeah, that's a whole other demand for the writer. I'm not just in my cozy, cozy, comfy chair uh, um, to do this. Podcast came back. It's
2: sort of in nonfiction and just sort of conversation interviews views and, um, and investigative journalism, but now fiction is starting to slide in there. It's a very exciting form to write because uh, you're using the listener's imagination as one of your key tools. You come up with a sound that sort of approximates what's happening, a sound that sounds close enough, and then you let them fill in the images in their mind. You sort of make the listener's imagination your storytelling partner. That's a really exhilarating way to work as a writer.
1: Welcome to GE Radio Theater. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Orson Wells. <laughs>
2: I squeeze in with Shannon and Octavia. Phone! The lot's not running the zizzy. It's the program itself. It's Sasha. It's life after.
3: Oh yeah. pass me your phone right now and do not Screw with me.
1: You are in a lot of trouble. So, Michael, half the people fear AI, the other half embrace it. I'm on the I, the embrace it side. So, <laughs> uh, are you claiming, not to put words in your mouth, that hmm. your variety of AI is not scary even if others might be?
3: So, AI is a technology, right? It's just it's just about writing programs and, and on computers that are going to do stuff. And yeah, people can use technology to do terrible things to each other. So, we should be aware of that. We need to pay attention to that. But the technology in and of itself can be incredibly beneficial. Yeah, but we have a
1: writer here who is only thinking about the bad stuff that can happen because yes. otherwise he doesn't have a story. Right, right. What Except was the last the sci-fi peril. story you said where everything went well? You know? <laughs> it's like, that's not a story. It's like, they went to space and something bad happens. That's the yep. whole
3: yeah. So people are afraid of space, too, because of writers. <laughs>
1: right? I mean, okay, that's where that's aliens true. live. You get out of here, too. It's just, <laughs> just going to be me and Colin talking about this. So what is the most irrational fear that we might be carrying?
3: Yeah, that is a that is a great question. I, I grapple a lot with the otherwise very, very intelligent people who are going around saying that any minute now the computers are going to come to life and animate themselves. and Skynet
1: then, will and, achieve consciousness. Yeah, and... and
3: And it's often very, very smart people who are fearing that. And I think it's because they're thinking about things so rationally, in a sense, that it's not really connected to reality anymore, becomes really kind of a a thought experiment. And um, I think that's unfortunate. I think that it's taking things a little bit too
1: literally. I'm, I'm trying to imagine a future where AI is just with us. Yeah. What is that world?
3: Right, right. I think that's great. I think that one way of thinking about what AI is doing for us or will do for us in the future is it's helping us to change our conception of what it means to be intelligent, of what it means to be social, of what it means to be interacting with people. And I think that that will just become enriched. It's not going to be the case that everyone just simply gets replaced by this, but we're going to be able to think about the world in a much more sophisticated way.
1: Well, that's what's happening today. I'd like to think machines, physical, mechanical machines have enriched our lives physically and mechanically our software has enriched us intellectually, our access to the internet, we've got computers just at at our fingertips. I already see these things as enriching us. And getting back to Mac's hierarchy of AI, what was the one super AI, where in fact it can make better moral decisions than we can, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. And will it one day judge that we are a virus on this planet? (laughs) As as Smith said to... Morpheus Morpheus, in the Matrix. As as Smith Smith said to Morpheus, you're a virus. Mm. You're not really alive. You're a virus. So will it come to this judgment and then get rid of us all and then go to the Bahamas with itself?
3: and then be spied on by itself, I know. and then we're back into the whole loop
1: all over again. Yeah, my machine will go to the Bahamas of your uh, machine. That's right, right.
3: <laughs> it's all very disturbing when you think about it. So I think that the issue is, from my perspective, there isn't one right way to be. There isn't one morality. There isn't one sort of ultimate goal that we're all pursuing. Part of what we're doing in life is exploring that space and trying to figure out what is it that we're trying to do. What should we set as our own goal? And so to the extent that you define a narrow goal— Narrow machines are going to always be able to do better at that one goal. But to the extent that the 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 you know the task is to explore the space of tasks and to figure out what it's you know what the experience of life is like, there's no replacing humans for that. That's something that we have to do as a team effort. If machines become intelligent and have their own motivations to kill us all,
1: but um, well, it's motivation that concerns me, right? Yeah, and that's if something that we really If they have, that, if, that if they really have what's the word? Understand. They have agency. Yeah, is or that was, the word? And uh, will, right? Uh,
3: <laughs> a super intelligent will is, is a very different kind of concept than just being a, a super intelligent computational device, which we have already.
0: You know, there's always this concept um, whenever we talk about AI that there is one AI system that rules them all. <laughs> but what you see- Skynet. Right? Yes. Yeah, Skynet. No, but what you see is many AI systems. So we know that they're hackers and now we create bots that fight the hackers, Right, and then the other people who do other AI. So maybe you'll have ten different AI systems watching each other. So now one can't just arise and suddenly take over the world. You have multiple ones looking at each other, analyzing each other, <laughs> growing just as fast. It's Nobody creeping me out you that you've already thought about this. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of people thinking about this. Oh, yeah. So there's people who have actually
3: thought about the counter to that already, yeah. which is the idea that well, because. Intelligence begets more intelligence. That if one of them has a little bit of an advantage over the others, it grows exponentially it. beyond. Exactly, right. and then right. it becomes what's called a singleton. It becomes the one AI that rules them I all. Have singleton. a word for that, Oh, man. I <laughs> I, have, I, didn't yes, know the I did not word. coin this word. <laughs> but,
1: um, this is
3: things that people actually
2: uh, talk about. In in, for example, so the book. Singleton Super is, the o-
1: is the opposite of a simpleton. Yeah, I guess so. yeah. <laughs> right. 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 I know.
2: I know. Yeah, you know where my brain goes. I was like, okay, that's a title of something. I'm going to call something the singleton. singleton. Yeah. <laughs> the singleton chronicle. Coming <laughs> I mean, this fall,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, by the way, the fact you have access to all this expertise. Like oh, how yes. many writers get to, get <laughs> to claim that, right? It's terrific.
2: With the first podcast, The Message, that was based around some of GE's innovations with ultrasound uh, medical technology. And then with this one, it was based around the uh, the digital twin predictive technology. So you were mining them for ideas. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. The great thing is that stuff that I wouldn't have even known about otherwise, but actually being able to talk to GE people about this and being able to funnel these ideas directly into the story, it works to sort of inform listeners. It gives them, kind of tells them, here's some new stuff that's going on that'll shape your world is worth thinking about I think people really get into in that way. it lends the story a kind of a greater immediacy to know it's like okay a lot of the stuff that's happening in the story is underway so it's a, it doesn't seem sort of like outlandish it doesn't seem like you know elves and dragons it seems like it seems like you know issues that that you know maybe we won't be grappling with to the ferocious extent of the story itself but then maybe we will be grappling with on a, on a somewhat more muted level in years and decades to come I think that makes the story v- visceral for people to listen to in a way Knowing that this stuff is being worked on, knowing that this stuff is coming down the pike, so uh, it, it is an enormous resource for a writer to actually get to, get to talk. And, to and by the way,
1: innovators. My favorite science fiction stories are the ones that are just a little bit in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 so so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can, that's going to mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Michael, you're an academic. Yes. That means you're plugged into some of the deepest ideas that are out there, but you're also kind of not plugged in because you're not in industry. Right. And so you're kind of in this netherland, I think, whereas we've got Colin here sitting to your right, who is in the trenches. And I'm always curious what that relationship is.
3: I think computer science, especially right now and, and AI more generally. Or more specifically, is very much exploring better and better contact between industry and academia. So I went to the the big Neural Net conference, uh, which is in Barcelona a few weeks ago. Barcelona, yeah. Barcelona. And um, It was very well attended by industry people and by academics. That's a good sign. And there's a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of information and ideas flowing back and forth between them to a greater extent than I've seen in my career. I feel like there's a real sense that the industry people know that they need to be tapped into what's going on in academia, and the academics very much need to be a part of what's going on, especially because all the cool data, all the really interesting problems are happening on the industry side.
1: Uh, I serve on a board in the service of the Pentagon, and in one of our sessions, we made it a priority that AI be a research focus of sort of the frontier uh, security research that the Pentagon does. And so I think that's the the buzzword today, but you in academia, your paths of exploration in some ways are uncontained. They're even less contained by the writer, but but in the sense that we've got Colin here who is gotta be hands-on at some point because there's a product at the end of the line. Mm and as a result you know exactly how you want to use ai yes and so because of this Mm -hmm. it seems to me you approach it fearlessly because you see how much good it can be put to use yes you see and you know Mm -hmm. the value of it Mm -hmm. to the business enterprise and, and to the bettering of life on earth so you're the reality check on yes, all this. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. uh, and the closer
0: we are to the academic side, the better it is. Unlike um, if you're looking at thermodynamics or aerodynamics, these laws were created decades ago. AI is now evolving. The books are being written as we speak. So if you
1: if you embrace that, you get an advantage. So, Colin, can you think forward about what next developments in AI you'll be able to exploit? Oh, yeah, there's several, right? The great
0: thing about Twin is that I'm capturing data in order for me to actually change the model so it approximates exactly what the physical asset is doing. And we do what-ifs. So by the time you add the data from people, from the fleet, from the simulations, from yourself, now we have a learning system. That learning system now allows us to take the product and the operations to the next level. This is something that actually augments the capabilities you have all around us. That's the next level that we see happening. And the great thing is as new AI capabilities show up, I have the data. I have this knowledge. I add that in. You're already ready for it. Exactly. (laughs) You're already ready already. And so the evolution shows up. Now, the other part of it that makes it essential is this notion of root cause, why it occurred. Mm. right? So now that I do machine learning, I get here's what happens. You can't just go and tell a chief engineer, well, we think this is going to happen. You've got to say, well, this... Variable temperature, this water flow, this pressure, that's what's causing the problem. Then is when he's going to take that billion-dollar asset offline to do something else. Mm. That root cause piece is the other key piece that's vital.
3: This is what I was thinking when I was listening to the podcast, actually, is that Capturing people's voices, being able to imitate the sounds of somebody is a problem that's being worked on right now, and there's very very nice progress on that. Using roughly the same amount of data that you posited that people would have uh, in in the podcast. (laughs) Um, But imitating their causal mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Imitating their – like what's making them say this? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, not just the motive, but – Yeah, let's say the motive. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, This sort of notion that they're saying it for a reason, and as the context changes, the reason might change, and that Mm -hmm. should change what they say. Mm -hmm. That we don't know how to capture with a small amount of data. That requires this back-and-forth process between positing a a structured model and using data to kind of fill in that model.
1: So, guys, thanks for being on this after Life After. (laughs) Thanks for having us. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Pleasure to be here. In fact, we should do this again. <laughs> <I'm> definitely. <laughs> I'll do this. So, I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm your personal astrophysicist, <laughs> uh, where I also host Star Talk Radio. And I'm sort of guest hosting here in After Life After. And I just want to thank Mac Rogers, the author of this brilliant series, and Michael Littman. You always need an academic in arm's reach. Otherwise, you know, we'll be lost. And Colin Paris, you're making stuff and analyzing stuff that's for right. GE. It's great to have you here uh, talking about the sci-fi thriller Life After from the GE Podcast Theater. It's a collaboration with Panoply, who produced the product. And uh, you can download it wherever podcasts are. So if that's your thing, do it. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, signing off.